morning, guys. Really, really glad you're here. Connecting online, glad you're here. Before I get going, I want to tell you about something that's coming up. This is, uh, you know, holiday season's a little weird in this COVID pandemic, isn't it? I mean, there are a lot of things that are telling people that they shouldn't do. But we're going to have something special that we are going to do as a church family over the holidays. Next week, we're going to have available to every household, every family, a Christmas box from Capital City. And that'll contain a number of things that we hope to do together over the month of December to worship, to connect, to grow, and to serve together. I think it's going to be really, really cool. Uh, if you're online and you want to get one of these boxes and join in with us, if you just let us know that you're going to want one, we will either mail it to you, bring it to you. Um, those, uh, if you can come by the church, we'll have them available starting next week. We're going to give you a lot more information about those boxes next week. Let's pray together. Father, I pray now that the words of our mouths and the thoughts of our hearts will please you. O oh Lord, our rock and our redeemer, in the name of Christ we pray, amen. Okay, guys, we've used this descriptor before. In fact, we've used it in a commercial because it describes kind of the church we want to be. Here it is. I'll read you the script. We welcome those who are single, married, divorced, gay, filthy rich, black and proud, ino habla inglés. We welcome those who are newborns, poor as dirt, skinny as a rail. You're welcome here if you're just browsing, just woke up, or just got out of jail. We don't care if you're more Catholic than the Pope or you haven't been to church since your baby's dedication. We welcome those who could lose a few pounds, who think the earth is flat, work too hard, can't spell, or came because grandma's in town and wanted to go to church. We welcome those who could use a prayer right now, who are three times divorced, had religion forced down your throat as a kid, or got lost in traffic and wound up here by mistake. We welcome those who are in recovery and those who are addicted, those who blew all their offering money at Keeneland. You're welcome here. We welcome tourists, seekers, doubters, bleeding hearts, and we welcome you. Welcome home. Isn't that cool? And we could probably add this. We welcome Republicans and Democrats and those who despise them both. We welcome pro-masks and anti-masks. We welcome those here who struggle with a whole plethora of sexual issues. We welcome those here who have an arsenal in their basement and those who think they're crazy. We welcome those who want stronger borders and those who think illegal is a dirty word. We welcome black lives matter, blue lives matter, and all lives matter. We welcome those who are obsessed with recycling and conserving and those who don't give a rip. Listen, guys, they're all in the room, right here, right now. You used to shake their hands, give them a hug. Now perhaps you give them a fist bump or tap their foot. You sing with them. You share the Lord's Supper with them. Isn't that weird? But the church has always been weird like that. It was part of God's dream. We have a diversity team here at Capital City. Hadn't been meeting that long, but basically a team that just tries to explore it. How can we, how can we make Capital City represent the kingdom that God wants us to be? It was a good meeting. But two of them said something that shocked me, mortified me, blew my mind. The worst 
possible way. They reported to the meeting that there are still people here in Frankfurt who think that Capital City is a place where blacks are not welcome. They actually expressed surprise that blacks might be welcome here at Capital City. Really? That is the opposite of what we have stood for and preached for as long as I've been here. I've been here 25 years. It's the polar opposite of what we're trying to build. And there are people out there who still think that there are those who are not welcome here inside these walls. It's the polar opposite of what God wants us to be. I don't care who you are, where you've been, what you've done, what you look like. Please come home. Walls, tribes, polarization, cancel culture. They're starting to define so much of our world out there, but not in here. Have you dug down at all into what this cancel culture means? It's a modern form of ostracism. It's where you try to marginalize or destroy someone who disagrees with you. Get them fired if you can. Keep them from getting rehired. Isolate them. Cut off their voice. It can be over something you think is incredibly dangerous. Or it could be something as little as you hurt my feelings. You ever been canceled? Hurts. And even though most people who talk about cancel culture mock it, as they should, most who poke fun at it do it too, because we are a society of hypocrites. The issues right now that are polarizing us are huge. People are canceling each other over policing and race. People are canceling each other over masks and lockdowns. People are canceling each other over politics steroids, calling each other names, level of hate and vitriol is stunning. There are actually people out there compiling enemies lists so that they remember who they need to cancel. And then some Jesus followers actually try to drag that nonsense into the church. And there are people who are not Jesus followers out there who are trying to drag the church in. Let me make just a couple of observations at the outset. First of all, number one, all of us, every single one of us, is by nature a screw-up. You believe that? Every single one of us has said things or done things that we shouldn't have. We call that sin. And all are sinners and fall short of the glory of God. Every one of us has done something that would justifiably cause someone who's close to us to cancel us. And if you're a Jesus follower... You can be canceled simply because you believe this. Jesus said, I am the way, I am the truth, I am the life, and no one comes to the Father without coming through me. That's considered intolerant, bigoted, and almost hate speech. Well, we're in a little series here at Capital City we're calling Big Church, Big Church. See, over the past number of months, the church has taken a series of body blows, and we're kind of in a rebuild mode here at Capital City. Just look around. It's time to start again. It's time for us to remember what Jesus meant for the church to be. It's not about what we were. It's about who he wants us to be right here, right now. So we're going back to the beginnings. What was the mission of the church from the start? How did the church start? How did we survive in a world that was even more hostile than ours is today? What kind of prayers did the church pray? What kind of people did the church go after? Who were the kind of folks that were joining the cause? That's the stuff we're going to dig into today. 
And we're kind of flying through the early chapters of Acts, which is the history of the earliest church. Two weeks ago, we looked at launch day, the big day, kind of the birthday of the church. Last week, we looked at the kind of prayers that they prayed, big prayers, the kind of prayers we need to be praying. Today, we're going to look at the target. Who did he tell us to go after? You see, Jesus gave us our target. But sometimes we Jesus followers kind of want to shrink the target. Jesus wants his church to be a weird, weird cluster of people who have no business hanging out with each other. Sometimes we would prefer to kind of limit the weird. And Jesus gave the orders. He says, you're going to receive power, and you're going to need that power when the Holy Spirit comes on you. You're going to need it because you're going to be my witnesses. And you're going to tell people about me everywhere, everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. You mean Samaritans too? Yeah. You mean Gentiles too? Yeah. I said everywhere. Everyone, everywhere. All of them. Well, they started immediately on the Jerusalem part. In fact, they kind of knocked that one out of the park. On day one, the big day, 3,000 people were baptized. It was incredible. Within a couple of weeks, they had 5,000, and the town wasn't that big. And the Christians, the apostles, are out there on the streets preaching to the very people who had killed Jesus, and they were saying things like, you killed him, God raised him, we saw him, he really is the Messiah, he's the Son of God, he's the one we've been waiting for, he's your hope of salvation. The authorities were hating it. So they were telling the Jesus followers to shut up about Jesus, but we wouldn't. They threw us in jail repeatedly. As soon as we got out, we'd start preaching again. But we're still in Jerusalem. We're not going to the Samaritans. We're not going to the ends of the earth yet. Until they murder a Jesus follower by the name of Stephen. Now, I don't think God caused them to murder Stephen. God never causes sin, but God can use sin for his purposes. Here it is, chapter 8, verse 1. A great wave of persecution began that day, the day they killed Stephen, sweeping over the church in Jerusalem, and all the believers except for the apostles were scattered. They kicked us out of town, and we went through the regions of Judea and Samaria where God had meant for us to go. I don't know. Maybe God was giving us a nudge. I told you to go to Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And now we pretty much have to. And we did well. Luke says the believers who were scattered did preach the good news about Jesus wherever they went. That's cool. They were getting it done. By the way, I would rather just get it done than have God nudge us. In fact, it's always cool when God whispers. It's never very fun when God raises his voice, right? Well, what I want to do this morning is look at three scenes very quickly. I know that's a lot more than we usually do on a Sunday morning, but I'm going to go through them light speed. I just want you to see a thread, and this thread is so important to us. These scenes tie together. They tell us something that is hugely important that we tend to forget about our target because our target has not changed. Scene one. One of the guys who was chased out of Jerusalem was a guy named Philip. And he goes north to a region called Samaria, right above Judea. 
Now, I can understand why Philip would go to Samaria to escape from the authorities. The Jews hated the Samaritans. The Samaritans hated the Jews. So the Jewish authorities aren't going to follow the Christians up into Samaria. What's harder to understand is why the Samaritans would listen to Philip when he told him about Jesus. I mean, Jesus was the Jewish Messiah. And he's up there telling him he's their Messiah too. And apparently the way he preached it was so compelling and what God was doing with these miracles to kind of punctuate what Philip was saying was so powerful that he started baptizing these Samaritans. And God was all excited. The home church was not. Samaritans? You want us to let them in? Are there people you hate? Literally hate. Maybe maybe an ex? Maybe the person who got you fired. Maybe it's somebody who hurt one of your kids. Have you ever hated a whole class of people? Any of you guys despise blacks? Muslims, maybe? Any of you old guys? This used to be a problem. A lot of our old guys would harbor this antipathy for Japs. Let's bring it closer to home. In our world, there are Democrats who hate Republicans, Republicans who hate Democrats. They would literally cancel each other if they could. They would ruin their lives. Is there anybody who, if they were to come into this room, you'd be tempted to get up and leave? Well, let's go here. Is there anybody that you kind of hopes is going to burn in hell? Someone who's hurt you that badly especially somebody close to you. Those are the Samaritans. I don't have time to unpack it, but what Jews thought of the Samaritans was that, and what the Samaritans thought of the Jews was that, that hatred, antipathy, loathing. And Philip is in there, up there inviting them into our church. You've got to say that with a grin on your face. So the church sent Peter and John north to check it out. But Peter and John are starting to get smarter. And they're smart enough to decide this. If God wants these guys in, we better not push them out. Listen, guys. If God wants them in and you don't, then you need to allow God to do some surgery on your heart. And he's good at it. So Peter and John went up north and they laid hands on these Samaritans and they got the Holy Spirit too, which meant God wants them in too. You see, the ecclesia, the church of God, is a place where walls are torn down. That's scene one. Here's scene two. Right after that, God sends Philip south, this time along the coast to a little place called Gaza. This Gaza is still in the news today, I'm afraid. And Philip, when he is there, encounters this guy. It's a divine encounter. We don't even know his name. All he is called is the Ethiopian eunuch. Clearly a divine encounter. God sets up a meeting. Have you ever had one of those? Apparently, God wants the church to go after these kinds of guys. Luke tells us this Ethiopian eunuch was the treasurer of Ethiopia. He works directly for the queen, which is why he's a eunuch. A eunuch, you see back then, they'd castrate guys who would work really close to the queen to keep her safe. I think I'd look for another job. 
So he's not just black and he's not just Gentile. He's the kind of guy that some people are really uncomfortable around. His voice would be a little higher. His body would be a little less masculine. Arnold Schwarzenegger would call him a girly man. Really high up, really rich. Apparently he is a God-fearer. He's intrigued by the God of Israel, which is why he went to Jerusalem to the temple. And this Ethiopian eunuch is sitting in a carriage or a, car a chariot or a wagon of some sort reading from the prophet Isaiah, which is weird because copies of the scripture back then were extraordinarily rare and incredibly expensive, handwritten. But he has an actual copy of the prophet Isaiah, and he's reading from one of the most powerful passages in all the Old Covenant that point to Jesus. And Philip says to him, do you know who Isaiah is talking about? Philip says, well, let me tell you about Jesus. It's a weird little story. I don't know how this eunuch was treated when he was down in Jerusalem. He wasn't a Jew. He wasn't even sort of an ethnic cousin like the Samaritans. He was a Gentile. He was a black Gentile. Jews hated the Samaritans. Jews hated the Gentiles too. Just touching a Gentile could make you unclean. Are they supposed to get in too? More than that, he's a eunuch. Did you know that the eunuchs wouldn't even be allowed in the Jewish temple, not even in the court of the Gentiles? They weren't allowed even in that far because they're not right, according to the Jews. Is the ecclesia of God for guys like that too? Yeah. God sends Philip down there. God brings the two together. If God wants someone in, we don't dare push them out. If God wants somebody in and we don't, then <laughs> he needs to do some surgery on our hearts. He wants them in. So this Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized too. And here's what's strange. He just disappears from the story. Kind of disappears. First, first Gentile convert that we know of, I mean Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. He's the first of the to the ends of the earth guys. He gets baptized, and then he just disappears from the story. What happens to him? We don't have a clue. I wonder why. Now, this may be overly cynical, but maybe. Maybe the other Jesus followers didn't get too worked up over this guy. You know why? Because out of sight, out of mind. See, we love stories. We still love stories of exotic people accepting Jesus as Lord and Savior in faraway places. I know they're weird, they're not like us, but as long as they're over there and we're here, no big deal. But it's different if they want to come sit in front of us or behind us or next to us in our church, right? Our church, right? Our church, it's kind of funny. Maybe it's the color that would make us uncomfortable. Does it bother you? or the way they talk, or the way they dress. Maybe they're just strange. And they come to Jesus somewhere far away, and a lot of Christians are like, yeah, God. Unless they come and sit behind you in the assembly, in the gathering, or next to you in the assembly, in the gathering. We'll send them money. We'll send them missionaries. We'll invite them to join us online. But here in our church, our church, in one of our life groups, Shoulder to shoulder, is that what God wants? Which may be why the last story that I want to show you is such a bigger deal. 
in the book of Acts. Scene three. It's another one of those divine encounters. Over on the coast of Israel, there was a very important town called Caesarea. It was kind of the headquarters for the Romans in the province of Judea. And in Caesarea, there's this guy named Cornelius. He's a centurion in the Roman army, which means this guy has been around. It means that there is a a whole lot of blood on his hands. It means that he has killed and he's really good at it. He's a warrior. Also, I mean, he had some power, some authority. He'd been at least a captain in our army, and depending on what kind of a centurion he was, maybe way higher. And, Luke tells us, he was a very religious man. Go figure. Like the Ethiopian eunuch, he was intrigued by the God of Israel, and he worshipped him in his own way. Well, somehow this Cornelius gets this message from God. An angel tells him, God is pleased with your prayers. God is pleased with your works of charity, and he's ready to answer you. Now, send some guys to Joppa to look for a guy named Simon Peter. Meanwhile, down in Joppa, God is working on a guy named Simon Peter. Peter was a pretty solid Jew. He was a Jesus follower, an apostle, but still a pretty solid Jew. And Jews did not hang with Gentiles. They had flat roofs back then a lot of times, and people would go up on top of the roof to work or to pray, and Peter's up on the roof praying when he gets a weird, weird vision from God. He looks up and he sees the sky kind of open and something like a sheet being lowered down, and all different kinds of animals, all different kinds of animals out on top of this sheet. And Peter hears this voice, get up, Peter, kill and eat. Now, if God had said that to one of the rednecks in this church, we'd have a wild game feast, and there'd be really good eating. Peter's a Jew, and they had all these weird food laws. I mean, I don't care how good bacon tastes or smells. They wouldn't eat it because they're weird, right? Peter says, this is really, really brash because he's talking to God. He tells God, no, God, absolutely not. I've never eaten anything impure in my life, and I'm not going to start now. And here it is. This is the punchline, what we're supposed to get. The voice tells him this, don't you dare. Don't you dare. Don't you dare call anything impure or unclean that God has made clean. Don't you dare push anyone out that God wants in. Peter's mystified. He has no clue what his vision means yet. But he gets exactly the same vision three times because God doesn't want him to miss it. Make sure you get this, Peter. Serious stuff. Well, just then, as Peter is sitting there mystified, this is a divine encounter, the guys from Cornelius knock on the door, and the puzzle pieces begin to slip into place. Peter and his companions go with them to Caesarea, to Cornelius' place, and this Roman warrior has invited his friends and his family in, and Peter actually goes into the house of a Gentile, into the house of a Gentile. How weird is that? And he says, you know it's against our laws for a Jewish man to enter a Gentile home like this or to associate with you. But God has shown me that I should no longer think of anyone as impure or unclean. Peter's a Jesus follower. So are we. I don't care what kind of prejudices you nurtured before you became a Jesus follower. They don't belong in here now. Peter starts telling them about Jesus, and in the middle of his sermon, the Holy Spirit comes down on these Gentiles and 
the Jews who are with Peter, their minds are just blown. Peter baptizes these Gentiles because if God wants them in, we don't push them out. If God wants them in and we don't, then he needs to do some surgery on our hearts. See, God doesn't honor the walls that we erect between people. He tears them down. Just one more little follow-up scene. This is really not scene four, just a follow-up. Peter gets back home to Jerusalem. Some of the other Jewish Jesus followers start criticizing him. What are you thinking, Peter? I know we're Jesus followers, but we're still good Jews. And there are peoples that a good Jew just doesn't hang with. And you're in his house. You're eating his food. And here it is. This is for us. Right here, right now. You ready? God says, don't you dare call anything unclean that I have cleansed. This is my house, says God. And I want him in. And then Peter says this, since God gave these Gentiles the same gift that he gave us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to stand in God's way? Who was I to stand in God's way? Who does anybody that would dare stand in God's way? Now I wonder, there's no record of anyone getting upset over the baptism of the Ethiopian eunuch. You'd think that he'd be the one that would make everyone the most uncomfortable. But this Ethiopian eunuch gets baptized, and then he just heads out of town, out of sight, out of mind. But Peter is in Cornelius' home, and his home is right up the road. And how is it going to make you feel if Cornelius and his family and his friends show up at our church next Sunday, sits behind you or in front of you or next to you, maybe once in your life group? Jesus said, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. He's talking to us too, guys. And he says, you're going to be my witnesses. You're going to tell people about me everywhere. Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And because those first Jesus followers bought it, you are here today. And I am here today. And our mission hasn't changed. Our target hasn't changed. If God wants them in, it's our job to go get them. If God wants them in and they show up, we don't dare make them feel uncomfortable. If God wants them in and we don't, then some heart surgery is required, isn't it? And God's really good at that. God shows no favoritism. God shows no favoritism, thank God, or you'd be on your way to hell. Me too. Listen, guys, I'm going to try to say this really carefully, and I need you to listen carefully to what I actually say. God wants racists at Capital City Christian Church. You know why? Because racists need Jesus. They need his truth and his grace. God doesn't want them to stay that way. He's got some healing he wants to do. Where else would you have them? God wants adulterers here at Capital City Christian Church. You know why? Because adulterers need Jesus. They need his truth and his grace. 
God doesn't want him to stay that way. He's got some healing to do. God wants thieves and cheats and liars at Capital City Christian Church because they need his truth and his grace. But God doesn't want him to stay that way. God wants addicts and bullies at Capital City and every other kind of sinner there is because every single one of us needs God's truth and God's grace. Our job is to accept each other. God's job is to change us. And he's really good at it. We've got them all. We have racists here and adulterers here and thieves and cheats and liars and bullies and addicts. We have Republicans here and Democrats. We've got pro-masks and anti-masks. We have rich and poor. We have fat and skinny. And we're tempted to draw lines, build walls, to allow their battle lines to infiltrate God's church. And God says, stop it. Stop it. There will be no cancel culture of any sort here at Capital City because it is his church. And because of that, this is going to be a messy place. You know why? Because sinners sin. We sin. Even those of us who are trying to be good Jesus followers sin. So people here, if you hang around with us, they're going to hurt you sometimes. They're going to hurt your feelings. It's possible they're going to hurt you more deeply. If you want to do life with God, with us, you're going to experience both microaggressions here at Capital City and probably some macroaggressions. To the microaggressions, we will ask you to respond with grace, with magnanimity. To the macroaggressions, we will ask you to respond with forgiveness, truth and grace truth and grace. And this church will be a magnificently weird cluster of people who have no business hanging together, dragging each other to heaven, and dragging as many people with us as we can. Isn't that cool? Every week here at Capital City, we take this Lord's Supper together. It's huge for us. And this Lord's Supper isn't just about eating a little tiny piece of cracker and drinking a little tiny cup of juice. That just makes it a snack. What makes it the Lord's Supper is what's going on inside of us. Now, the Apostle Paul had to deal with a cancel culture church in the first century, a divided church. He says, I hear that when you come together, there are divisions among you. And then he says this. This is, this is huge. He says, so, because there are divisions among you, when you come together, it's not the Lord's Supper that you eat. It's not the Lord's Supper you eat. Yeah, they're, they're going to eat the bread and they're going to drink the cup. But he says, it's not the Lord's Supper. In fact, he says, for those who eat and drink without discerning the body of Christ, and the body of Christ probably means the church, they eat and drink judgment on themselves. Guys, it's really easy to be hypocrites. We're good at it. Most of us Jesus followers try to present ourselves one way here in this room, around this table. But oftentimes we present ourselves differently out of this room, away from this table. We treat people differently outside these walls. Listen, 
God won't honor what we do at this table if we're not trying to honor each other outside this table. So this is a time to ask God's forgiveness, to beg his grace, and to make a vow to start living as Jesus follows. The Apostle Paul said, I received from the Lord what I passed to you. The Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, took bread. When he had given thanks, he broke it, and he said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in memory of me. In the same way, after supper, he took the cup. He said, this cup is a new covenant in my blood. Whenever you drink it, do it in remembrance of me. And then he said this, this is so cool. For whenever you eat this bread and whenever you drink this cup, you're a witness. You're a witness to Jesus. You proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Will you pray with me? Father, for your grace, we give you thanks. For the wisdom and the courage to be children of God in a world that desperately needs you. We just beg you to pour it out on us, to strengthen us. Father, help this church to be the place you want us to be. I pray that you'll help us to be a beacon of light in a world that so desperately needed your truth and your grace. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen. Mm-hmm.